Welcome to episode 3 of MADE, the podcast about purpose-driven design, making, and manufacturing. Today we're going to be talking about an eco-friendly school in East Baltimore. So let's continue the conversation. Hi everyone, welcome back to MADE episode three. Um, Today, because of some scheduling issues, we're going to change it up a little bit, and I'm going to play the recording from our first test podcast. This is something that never aired, but I think the conversation was still pretty interesting. Uh, Due to some scheduling, we all couldn't be here today, but as always, you're going to hear the voice of Ray Peña, Claudia Berrigan, and myself, Jose Valcarso. So let's just go ahead and get to the show. Starting with news, right? Our first topic is going to be about an architect, Rene Peralta, who wants to build a solar farm on the Tijuana River. Now, this guy, I don't know how many people are familiar with the, the Tijuana River, but it's a river that has been engineered, right? It's completely a concrete river. I don't know, you, I know we've been to LA, Claudia. Have you been to LA, Ray? Um, Right, it's a similar thing. So this architect has decided that, you know, these rivers, uh, there's a big problem with the heat island effect with them. It's, you know, it's a complete change in the ecology there. So he wants to use that to, his, to the advantage of the city, and he wants to put solar panels as well as a filtering system for water there. So what, what, I mean, what do you guys think about this? It's something that the, it's already been engineered years ago, making it and turning it into something, something effective for the community. surrounding the building outside like on the boundaries of the, this particular river there is a city ecology around it right there's people around there because humans are actual beings right mm-hmm. uh, within this environment that we all live in and we have needs as well and spe- specifically LA right now has a huge drought problem and one of the things that and energy is always a big issue for all of us right now um, so I think that yeah by by including the city and humans and the population, the town, the community around them, and thinking of them also as part of the ecology and how can we reuse this big space. Um, what I'm in really interested in is the scale of this, how mm. that will impact and how you would be able to create this, um, this, like this plan that he has. How would you scale this down? Like, you know, is it phased? 
uh, it's a great idea, but it's, it seems like in, in the implementation of it will be a, a really good thing to look at. Yeah, I mean, I think of, of anything, trying to figure out how this is funded or how this happens. But I mean, we have examples here in the United States, you know, the, the high line, while it's not, as, it's not the same thing as this, was able to be done in phases and reclaim this space for the people. In this case, it's reclaiming it to create energy for other people and to create a cleaning system for water. So it's really not that on scene. For those who are not familiar, you mean the Highland in New York? Yeah, the Highland in New York, New York City. Yeah. Yeah, now that's an interesting project because that took years before a decision was finally made to do something with it. And there were many architects, including Stephen Hall, over the years that proposed many, many different solutions. Uh, and I think that, that the final solution that was actually built was is a uh, a gorgeous piece of uh, of reuse uh, slash. Um, uh, engineering of, of an existing structure. Right. No, I, I agree. I think it's it serves quite a great purpose in the city of New York, and you know I could see this as something similar. Yeah, that'll be that'll be interesting to treat that as a as a opportunity for green space because even though it of the Highline is that it is this elevated uh, thoroughway that is very uniform in, in, in terms. So yeah, it might be green, but it's very uniform in its design. It's very, it's, it's high design, it's really nice, it's very modern, but it doesn't really um, reflect the, the different neighborhoods that it traverses by, right? So a river has this wonderful thing, a regular river, right? Mississippi River, especially as an example, it goes through many different communities, states, um, counties, and every single one of them has its own different culture, its own different um, set of design even. So it'll be really interesting to see, because I can look, when I, when I looked at the article, it has this awesome um, aerial view of, what, of how it tra traverses the entire city. I could almost see this as a collage of different types of... Um, ecological uses that you could mm -hmm. use you know like you could do solar panels you could do green roofs you could do uh water filtrations i mean you can do so many different things throughout that are reflective of the communities mm -hmm. that it's going through yeah, i agree I, I would say also the other thing that struck me about this article um because it made me think back to uh, i don't know if you guys have seen the video when elon musk first introduced the new battery that tesla's putting out for the home in part of that video he shows the amount of space needed solar cells needed to be able to power the entire United States. And it was such a small area that he shows in that video. When you start thinking about, and you see that aerial view that you just mentioned of the river, you can start to imagine it's not that difficult to find areas in a city where we could start covering with solar panels and taking the need of using other sources of energy out, you know? Okay. Yeah, my other sources of energy are really fossil fuels. Right. Uh, because it, uh, interestingly enough, there, there's really very few sources of energy. One is 
uh, harvesting natural energy, like like you mentioned, uh, solar cells and wind, uh, geothermal. Uh, and then the other option is is uh, fossil fuels, and we all uh, we all know what the story is with fossil fuels. And then of course the third is um, is uh, nuclear uh, sources. The interesting thing about nuclear sources is that it takes fossil fuels to extract them and refine them into a point where they can be usable. So even if you're using nuclear fuels uh, fuels to create energy, the energy that it took to get there still came from uh, a fossil fuel source. So it'd be an interesting concept to be able to bypass uh, that fossil fuel um, uh, uh, linkage to get from one point to the other. Even even now, even the manufacture of solar cells or even uh, wind turbines, whatever you're manufacturing, uh, you still are consuming fossil fuels to make them. Mm-hmm. So it'd be it'd be interesting to be able to uh, see a project like this take shape that kind of eliminates that whole uh, middle process uh, of people that you have to lab right now not necessarily go through to create these things. I think it's these are all interesting. I think this is a story that we need to keep track of uh, moving forward. All right, the next story here we're covering is uh, an experimental floating office takes over a converted World War II barge. Now, I added this story because, one, I like the design of this of this boat, right? But one of the things that also bothered me <laughs> that, I, that I read, and it's a quote from the architect that says, as floating structures don't need planning or building regulations, we reveal in the design freedom this landscape presented. So that bothered me for a couple of reasons, right? Like, first of all, they should, right? There should still be some regulations to this <laughs> as far as because you're... you're taking a, a piece of area that you're going to sort of start building. If there's no regulations to this, anybody can start just sort of putting boats everywhere and putting these huge offices that could be death traps, right? Is there, as I was looking at this, like, is there any, any fire safety associated with this building? Like, or Because it is a building at this point. It's no longer now just a boat. This bothered me a little bit. Well, you bring up an interesting point because uh, boats have always uh, have been exempt from any kind of uh, building... Uh, um, regulations. There are naval regulations uh, that are in place for for uh, boats. And by the way, if you are curious, mm-hmm. the Coast Guard mm-hmm. basically uh, classifies anything as a vessel that can be used away from the beach or coastline. So if you are on a surfboard on a uh, you know in the middle of the ocean, guess what? That is a vessel and now required to comply by all of the regulations that uh, the Coast Guard requires for vessels. So what's interesting about this is because it's tied right to the edge of a coastline, because it's a barge and uh, it's being used, you know, kind of like a houseboat, I think it's in the middle ground. It's in the, it's, it's kind of in a wasteland, but maybe the uh, Coast Guard requirements don't apply. Maybe some of them do, some of them don't. Uh, and, of course, building regulations, because it's not really a building, because buildings are required to be built on land. So it's this weird kind of loophole that this uh, project falls into. Uh, having having looked at the um, at the images and read the article, uh, there's really nothing that I can see that says, "Oh, they really took a huge departure uh, from uh, you know normal safety standards." However, I agree with you. Being in the in the middle, uh, there's really no reason for them to comply with any of them, and and, and that is a, an item of concern, mm-hmm. especially if you're on this barge that's only connected in one place. Your only other means of egress is water. So what if you can't swim? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. What do you think about this, Claudia? Well, number one is 
I think Jose would get really seasick if he was in this place. I would. I actually, I could not work in this office. I, I, I throw up when I'm standing in the dock, so I can't. I could not work here. Maybe we go and like measure the. No, no, no. I, this is not an expanding a business for me. I'm not. I'm not moving into. Let's convert boats into into buildings. That's for sure. Um. Yeah. Like I. What's What's really interesting is resi community resilience in this thing because, for houseboats here in DC, for example, they have this community of uh, houseboats and it's I had no idea about any of this that you really didn't have any requirements sometimes of how you wanted to design your own houseboat I guess right is what, yeah, we're, yeah. we're talking about mm -hmm. and um but once it comes out into uh flood rise levels of, of you know issues climate change issues and also new development that's that, that's being done near near this particular community here in dc like waterfront development they're being displaced they're being impacted there's going to be major issues and that's when this community started like here in dc they, they started like you know oh well we need it we should maybe we should have had more requirements maybe we what, should have united what rights do they have right yeah and now they wanted to have the rights now they wanted to have like more things because they really wanted to have this this protection around them right and to me it goes even a little further than that still because if it's a boat there's no zoning that restricts the use in this area right like what stops when i when i'm designing a building some questions get asked as whether it's going to be hazardous chemicals, there's going to be this, there's going to be that. What stops them from making a factory boat or who knows what? You know, in some, in some areas of the country, there are gambling boats where it's not normally uh, legal to gamble in those, in those states. Correct. It's, it's interesting now that it's moving into buildings that people can occupy in this way, not just recreational like those boats are. Yeah, and then the impact on animals too, like um, bird migration is highly impacted, especially on waterfront, um, on waterfront development, uh, because you know, like if there's more light in, in a specific waterfront, uh, some birds will go directly to it. So that's why, like you know, if you have like a sports stadium built right against the waterfront, it really affects it. like the the patterns of those mi of those migratory birds. And if all of a sudden you have these houseboats and they have a lot of lighting in them and they have a lot of glass in them and they have all these other things, you know, you could start seeing a lot of birds just colliding with these structures and mm. you're really, like, impacting too. So it's, it's just, it's an interesting topic. I think you bring up an interesting point there and that is the, the floating office at Waterfront Development. Um, that would be a very sticky subject uh, legally. I think that's, that's an interesting subject that you bring up. Because there's a lot of stuff that goes under the radar like this that doesn't really qualify for anything, so it never really gets classified. Uh, so you bring up an interesting case, uh, and I'm not sure if you've seen some of the uh, floating houses of, of Holland. They've mm -hmm. got some interesting yeah. things going on over there. Uh, yeah. you know, Prefabricated concrete floating houses, mm -hmm. and they're making entire villages on the water. Uh, Alright, moving on to the next story. So the next story is U.S.-Mexico border wall competition provokes controversy, right? And this is not really to talk about necessarily the merits of this idea. It, it, it I brought, I thought it was interesting because as all three of us went to architecture school, we were, we're used to looking at this sort of architecture competition, like, oh, let's see what that is. And, you know, we followed them to a certain degree. Um, but this competition has brought up a lot of controversy, clearly, for its topic. 
Um, it's by the Third Mind Foundation, which is apparently a foundation you can't find a lot of information on. Um, and, you know, some of the stuff they say can be quite odd. Uh, they say, by any estimate, the current fencing along America's southern border is ineffective, ineffective at best, a dismal failure at worst. Now, setting aside that a lot of people have already said, and the border wall that Trump, and Trump is mentioned in this thing, is proposing would be impossible to do, what really stuck me about this uh, article and this competition in particular is that they say in the competition brief that they take no position on this issue, are politically neutral, and interest, interested in considering the question from a wealth of perspectives. So my question to both you guys is, can you really, not necessarily run this competition, but can you really work on this kind of a project and be have no position on an issue like this? Uh, I think that would be impossible, honestly. I, I, I like how they, they started the article with that, mm. and that should be enough of an indicator to show you that it is already a polarizing issue before you even read the article. Mm. Uh, it, and uh, as you, as we know, uh, this is one of those, uh, this being an election year, it's been one of those hot topic issues. Um and I don't, to answer your question directly, I don't think it's possible. I don't think you can approach, approach this particular project neutrally. It's kind of like saying, uh, you know what, we need to be neutral about the design of a execution chamber. You know, there's not an execution chamber, but, but you know, let's, let's be objective about it. Uh, <laughs> you're on one side or the other on that, on that issue, and that's a, a tough thing. I agree. You, you really can't be, you, have, you cannot be neutral, you, or, and you really shouldn't. And, and and one of the things, like, you know, in terms of hot topics, I kept on thinking about this particular topic and, you know, Saha Hadid passing away, right? Mm -hmm. um, and what's the connection, you would ask, like, what would you even think about this and then Saha Hadid? But one of the, one of the um, comments that I read from uh, a woman, a young woman, actually, about Saha Hadid is how she was like, you know, she was... She was. She wasn't. She was like. Oh, she was a great arch architect. But I really did not appreciate how she never, how Saha Hadid never took a stand on the migrant worker issue, mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of her buildings had issues with migrant workers. Right. So, as far as designers are concerned, architects are concerned, you know, tend to be like this. You know, well, we're going to be politically neutral. We are really not going to talk about this. That also has a huge impact on who you are and how you're remembered. And also, you do have the, the podium to actually make, to take a side, right? And in, in that particular case about migrant workers, you maybe should do that. Now, again, there's so many other aspects to it, right? Who your client is, who's actually paying your bills, you know, your reputation and everything else. But for a competition like this, which is, you know, for, you know, even for students to do, breaking those boundaries is also important. So maybe going one way or the other, is, is not bad mm -hmm. as well. But this particular topic and Trump being so incendiary is not the greatest thing. But for other you issues... Know what's you know what's interesting about this article in particular is that this, uh, and, and I'm going to read it to you right here, it says, um, uh, you must first have passion and empathy. You must be the first user. Empathy requires more than intellectual understanding. Um, this ties into your previous uh, article uh, as far as... Uh, as empathy is concerned uh, for uh, for design and uh, the end user experience, and what what, what strikes me that uh, strangely is that this is a, a competition to begin with. It is 
I'm, I'm shocked that somebody would even uh, think it's a good idea well, to create a, uh, a competition out of it. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, uh, let's make a comp- the design competition for the next Auschwitz. You know, it is beyond even thinking. Now, I know that they probably looked at it as like, well, this is an interesting academic uh, exercise. Uh, and, and possibly, you know, there's a lot of things that would be interesting, like, you know, the effect of a nuclear bomb on a city, that would be you know, academic exercise, but not, not that, that you really would, uh, would want uh, that would want that to happen. And I think, um, you know, covering that issue, can you be neutral? Um, my personal view on this is that I'm actually surprised that we have borders in any country to, to begin with. And we're all on the same mm-hmm. rock. We're sitting on the same planet. Right. And it's yeah. a bit ridiculous that we don't all share all of our resources in a in a more communal manner. I mean, to, to throw up some fences and walls and say, oh, this little piece of land is mine. You can't come over here. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's kind of primitive. It's archaic. It's... it's um, uh, uh, barbaric even, you know, uh, and, and the concept of ownership of land when all of the land is actually required to create an ecosystem for the whole planet that we can all survive on is uh, is also kind of ridiculous. Now, having said that, a full disclosure, I do own land, so, um, you know, it's one of those things that <laughs> you kind of uh, have to play along with the system, uh, but uh, I'm also not of that extreme socialist view that the uh, the government should own, own the land either. I think there's a, a, a medium uh, place that, for countries themselves to have borders and and uh, and, and, uh, and separate part of, of the population of the world very sharply and distinctly, like creating a wall specifically to keep um, you know people from South and Central America out and control their their. Uh, their uh, ingress and egress, because if you notice, they're not proposing a wall uh, on the northern border. They're not proposing right. one in Canada. Yeah. So it's it's a very polarizing issue, and it is very very difficult to be objective. It's very. It's, I completely agree, and I agree with both with what both of you have said. But when you know when I put myself outside of okay, clearly I I find it hard to say that I can be neutral when it comes to this particular topic of this wall this wall across a country. Right between borders, but then it makes me think. Okay, if if it's hard to be neutral about that when it comes to me designing a church, if I'm not a religious person, then can I design a church? Right? If I yeah. can, can I be neutral in that sense? Mm. You know, and it, it brings up those questions of like maybe am I thinking it's impossible to be neutral here because it's a topic that I am on one side of the fence, pun intended. <laughs> But when yeah. it comes to something where I'm on the other side of the fence, I'm not willing to say, yeah, no, of course I can be neutral. I can see from your point of view of being a religious person. You know, it's yeah. it's an interesting topic to me in that sense. And I'm glad you bring up the church because, um, uh, you know, we've all worked in the architectural field at some point right. or another. And I've actually worked on several churches. And right. as you are clearly aware, of my mm-hmm. personal religious views are, right. are uh, <laughs> neutral. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, to say the least. So, uh, but I, you know, I did work on churches objectively, but I wasn't interested in how uh, their particular religion was functioning. Uh, my my goal was to make uh, the building what the what uh, the uh, client wanted and make sure that it was legal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, I, in that particular uh, uh, way, the uh, 
uh, you know, I think I think personally that was very objective. They all got permitted. They all were used, and I've worked on synagogues and mm-hmm. and uh, um, uh, uh, you know regular Christian churches and, and mm-hmm. what have you. So uh, it, it, in one respect, it's less morally objectionable right. uh, to me to uh, work on something that I don't agree with as far as religion is concerned mm-hmm. than to put up such a put so much effort into a, a barrier, an obstacle. That basically says, uh, you know what, you people here on that side, we don't want you here. Uh, I think it's much more morally objectionable. Mm -hmm. No, I I agree with you that it's much more morally objectionable. Maybe it's more of a moral issue than it is being able to be partial. You're right there. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, what I think, like, this definitely fits into one of of our topics to, to discuss later on in the fact, in the area of ethics and practice. Um, and practice, you know, and being everything. But you know, from our experience of going to going to school, we really don't discuss ethics in our in 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 school, like, right? And, briefly, and, 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 very briefly discussed. Yeah. Professional practice and you know, like classes or anything like that. Very briefly, and it's almost something you don't want to discuss. But other fields, um, you know, environmental, you know, environmental science, specifically science as a whole, they talk about ethics. They teach their students ethics from the beginning. And it's really interesting that some design fields do not discuss ethics as a whole. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. All right, good. Well, that's, uh, that's the end of the news section. Let's move on to our main topic for the day. So for our main topic today, I, uh, I thought we'd talk about a, a school in Baltimore. Um, there's an article that actually is associated with this story. Um, it's an eco-friendly school that is being uh, being described as a beacon of hope for a poor neighborhood in Baltimore. Um, it's a building designed by R- Rogers Partners, um, which is Richard Rogers, a very well-known architect. Uh, it's in Baltimore, which is a, a, an area that all three of us are aware aware of because we we live in D.C. and Ray for a long time lived in Baltimore, um, and I think there's a lot to see about this project that the words are the words sounds great i've not been to the building i've I, and i look forward to going to it to see if what they're saying here actually matches up but this idea of making a school be part of the community and this sort of more progressive learning environment and uh, it's spaces that weave into the surrounding urban fabric all of these are great great descriptions of this school that I, that I like I even like the fact that they reuse some of the townhouses that were in the site you know they didn't just mow, mow everything down there's some level of historic preservation to it they speak about getting inspiration from the stoops on the Baltimore townhouses um, so I, I you know there was a lot I liked about this project I'm interested to hear what you guys think about it when you um you want to go first, Claudia, and, and I'll close it up? Oh, okay, well, we can do that. Well, I'll I'll be short with this one. I mean, it, one of the one of the one of the things that really strike strike me about this particular um, topic or this particular article was the connection of East Baltimore and the mean um, one of the goals. Like, right, you know, every every architecture project has a goal, and the goal was to do to kind of solve community problems from inward. Right and you know this school to be the inward ish the inward what was it um rebuilding the community from inside out is how they they phrased it and I think that's a huge goal 
That's a very big goal to do. I mean, especially when the when the problems that it's trying to address are huge. These are systemic problems, um, especially like you know education in inner cities, uh, issues with community, issues with crime, issues with you know like uh, corruption, right? Funding. I mean, there's so many huge things, and to be able to do that, solve all those issues through design. I think it's 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 great that they're trying to do that, but I think that. It's definitely not a goal that it's attainable. Um, from the community's perspective, I, I really like how they have, how they um, they approach the project, but it's very typical of how you know outside firms come in and, and do work on a, in, mm. in a community, and I, I I'm really um, critical of that because I don't believe that um, you know Richard Rogers truly feels that you know like. He, he knows, like, you know, at some point it says, oh, well, these are the tough goals that, you know, like, that I'm trying to to resolve in, 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 hmm. in, in this area of East Baltimore, and I know what their issues are. No, you don't. You really no, don't. And, and, only, you know, only people from East Baltimore know what those issues are, and they're the continued issues that, that are constantly there. And I agree with that. I think let's talk about that after we talk about sort of the more the design part of it, yeah. and then we'll get into where, where, his, where, whether, where he fits into this. Mm-hmm. What, what, what about you, Ray? What do you think, I mean, in general, of the idea of what the school's talking about, knowing that we'll talk about Richard Rogers' involvement after after that part of it? Yeah, because that, uh, I think we all feel strongly about uh, uh, Rogers Parker's involvement in this project. Um, well, uh, as you guys know, I, uh, I lived in Baltimore, and uh, in fact, I still yeah. have a house there. And um, when they say that this is a rough part of Baltimore, uh, they're, they're really uh, underplaying Baltimore. Uh, I would say 90% of Baltimore is a rough part of Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Um, it just so happens that, uh, you know, I lived and worked there. Uh, but uh, I think that the, on the surface, I think that the concept of providing this school is more like a, a safe learning haven, a, a, an educational haven for students because uh, Baltimore does have a lot of problems. And, and this is speaking on the social uh, aspect of it. And um, the adults that live in Baltimore that are either uh, addicted to drugs or, or engaged in crime or one thing or another uh, happens to be the position that they're in, the only way to turn the community around is to start with the children. You need to uh, get them, as Claudia pointed out, educated uh, and, and see that there is a, a future in, on the horizon. There is something for them to shoot, uh, shoot for. So as far as a new school, because I have seen some of the schools in Baltimore, and honestly, I was shocked that these schools even existed in such deplorable conditions. Um, if you actually look up the education standards for Baltimore, uh, they, they are uh, you know, great schools, but most of them are, are actually in, in failing mode. Uh, so it is, it is a very tough place for children to get a, uh, a head start on their futures. Now, speaking of the uh, of the design itself, what's interesting is that it is a uh, a green building as far as uh, complying with the uh, the Baltimore City green building standards. Um, and the uh, the green building standards of Baltimore were implemented in um, in a attempt to uh, give developers and, uh, and contractors an option to to uh, uh, pursue uh, because uh, instead of a green building certification, um, the city 
green building uh, standard may, uh, that makes that every building above 10,000 square feet is going to be a green building, and you have a choice to either comply with the U.S. Green Building Council silver certification or the, uh, the Baltimore City Green Building Standards. Now, what I like and what is interesting about this, because I did have one project near the end of my uh, my uh, tenure at uh, the architecture firm that would comply with the green building standard. Uh, what is interesting about the Baltimore City version is one, you, there are no fees to pay. You don't need to, uh, uh, you know, sign your project up with the with the uh, U.S. Green Building Council, pay your fees, uh, uh, you know, have have uh, leave accredited professionals work on your project. You need to have people who are who are competent. And if you're an architect in Baltimore practicing and you're familiar with the, with the green building standards, uh, you're going to be competent. You need somebody who's competent. You still need to comply with a lot of the requirements. For example, um, the uh, the energy uh, auditing um, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, the, the energy auditing requirements, a lot of other requirements. But what's nice and interesting about the green building standard uh, for Baltimore is that it's specifically catered for Baltimore, and they. Uh, they give you uh, points based on the things that are obvious that you don't need to prove. For example, the, where the school is located, it will comply with the the uh, public transportation uh, um, section of the of the standard, and you automatically get points for that. And also, if you uh, comply with, they have a little extra uh, verbiage in there that says if you go above and beyond to prevent rats, and by the way, rats are an enormous problem <laughs> in Baltimore. Yeah. rats there big. Um, if you really go out of your way to make sure that you uh, keep them out of this project, um, you get points for that. So it makes the uh, the compliance with the green building standards, and those are just a few examples, um, more geared to the exact issues that are uh, pervasive in Baltimore than just following a, a blank guideline produced by the U.S. Green Building Council. So, yeah, and, and I'll uh, tell you this, anything that takes away from using that the lead green building standard, I'm all for, because that's just a bit money-making scheme. I, I cannot uh, that, that continue. And you know what? I, I think that the lead standard, when it first came out, was actually a very powerful tool, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, as, as you and I both know, it has transformed drastically, Right. Um, <laughs> and it's now it's become quite a bureaucratic Tool. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I personally have lost interest in myself, and I, and I have worked on uh, three uh, LEED Silver certified projects um, as far uh, as that's concerned, and I, I have worked on a, uh, a Baltimore City Green Building Standard project, and uh, I personally prefer the, the Baltimore City Green Building project, yeah. even though it is similar. Um, I think that it's actually, one, more user-friendly, two, it's more uh, local, you know, it's part of the community. And uh, it really addresses the issues that they have uh, as far as uh, uh, the issues that are particular to Baltimore. For example, uh, a green roof. A green mm-hmm. roof is actually more heavily weighted in the in the Baltimore City Green Building Standard than it is in the LEED uh, 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 certification standards. Mm-hmm. So it is an issue because of the heat island effect on the in urban islands uh, that uh, that they have addressed in in, uh, in the Baltimore standard uh, because it would be more beneficial to Baltimore than just uh, how it's covered in, in the league standard. I, I couldn't agree with you more on all, on all of that. Um, let's talk a little bit about Richard Rogers being the architect for this project um, because I think that's something that 
you know, as and it's easy for us to say, knowing that we're both all local to this area and that we live in, we've we live in this area, we've lived in this area. Um, I know it bothers me that Richard Rogers is doing this when there's plenty of people that could be doing this project from the city. But I mean, what do you guys think about it? Uh, you know, I agree. Now, now I'd like to first start by saying that uh, obviously we all know who Richard Rogers is. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a long time uh, uh, architect, beautiful work. Yeah. I, I don't want to take away anything from the skill and the quality of the work that, that right. he produced. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. yeah, no, that goes with saying he's a fabulous architect. Yeah. Yeah, a fabulous architect, period. Mm-hmm. Having said that, it is a slap in the face to say mm-hmm. that this is a improvement to the community and it's community oriented and then hire an architect that is from across the ocean. It, it does not, it doesn't even make sense. Uh, there are dozens, if not hundreds of architectural firms that would have loved this contract and I guarantee you would have charged less in fees than uh, uh, yeah, you know, Rogers um, uh, uh, partners would have. Or did, I'm sorry. Did. And from the work that I've done in the with um, in, in Baltimore with community work, uh, like uh, Neighborhood Design Center, uh, specifically like in Southeast Baltimore, what I've heard from community members, I mean, and these are, you know, like what you are, what, what most people would, would assume, you know, again, these assumptions, right, tying into to the empathy um, topic, but that, you know, the, you know, run down a neighborhood people, people who are underprivileged, people who have, uh, are uneducated, may have, um, drug problems and but within amongst these communities there are also people who are have are fifth you know sixth generation people from baltimore mm-hmm. you know families and they have requested the city multiple times for years decades that we need to include archi- local architects right. you know you need to include yeah. culture and they have been asking for this in the you know these are the people who are being affected by this mm-hmm who are impacted by this and they're asking for it. So it's basically someone mm-hmm. is not listening to the majority of the people because even architects are asking, like, local architects are asking this. Mm-hmm. So at some point it's okay. just, it's, it's just ridiculous. Well, and I'll tell you another little interesting aspect. When I first moved to Baltimore, I was working at an architecture firm. I was involved with a, um, a, uh, uh, an organization and that was about 10 years ago. I don't remember the name of it now. But what they did is that they were trying to stimulate the, um, I think it was called ABC, uh, something ABC. Uh, they were trying to stimulate interest in, uh, in architecture, um, building and construction uh, uh, industries with uh, students. So what, what they were doing is they, were, they headed this program that um, uh, would take students from the uh, vocational school in Baltimore in Baltimore that were interested in this particular program and we would take on a project and of course this was you know after hours and we would um, uh, uh, discuss the, uh, the issues, the problems of this particular project, develop a solution uh, and do a, uh, a charrette and then the students had the opportunity to uh, to present all these different groups. Now, there were several groups of students from several different schools that uh, were able to present their ideas, and uh, at the end of it, uh, the whole thing, uh, you know, some awards were given and all that, but it actually stimulated uh, the students that were in high school thinking about their next step, uh, uh, going to college and what they're going to study. And for some of those students, uh, before this program, they really didn't have any, any 
possibility of uh, of going to college or even what was going to happen. So it kind of was an eye-opening experience, and I, and I uh, you know, it was a very it was, a, it was a pleasure to work with those students and and to see the light in their eyes when they, they there was something that was so interested in that they knew that they could pursue in the future. Mm-hmm. And that was a good. This is a good project for that kind of program, and right. they kind of bypassed all of those possibilities when they, they hired this fabulous architect from uh, from England to come and work on a project for a community that he was not part of. Right. And I, I get it. And let, to be clear, though, this was a competition. This was a competition that was done and he won it. But there was no need for that to be a competition, right? Because they could have gone through the process, instead of putting all this resource into the competition for this school, done the resources of doing what you're talking about, right, Ray? It's not, it doesn't, Absolutely. yeah. It doesn't have to be, and it reminds me a lot about something that's happened here in D.C. as well. It's a very similar thing in that they decided to start renovating all of the schools, and they've done it in a way where they've put even the large firms that are D.C.-based in a position where they have to team up with some great designer from who knows where, some from England, from Amsterdam, from all of these places, where the local firm, perfectly capable of doing this kind of project, has to team up with some big-name out of the out of the country usually to do the project yeah. and it just makes no sense yeah and i really like, exactly yeah, and that, that's exactly the point i was gonna make i really like the point of like the you know the effectiveness the the fiscal effectiveness of this thing is it economically feasible because while i i when you think of the implementation again you know these are systemic problems right for the city like in education doesn't is it really feasible is it really good it can, doesn't. Is a really good economics to spend so much money, right? Is a forty-two million on the on this one one K to eight school, right? To have everything in there that you can think of. While I'm really happy, thank you, thank you, Ray, for all the explanation about lead compliance and specifically, and which what that translates to being empathetic to the community, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But you know, put everything in there basically that is green. On this one school that only serves 720 mm-hmm. students, and those are selected students, right? The only them will be able to 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 use this. And we know, like some of these, you know, like the systemic issues in education is is that people will eventually um, lottery into these schools, or they will, you know, get themselves swindle themselves into these schools, mm-hmm. into this particular school. Meanwhile, there's you know 10, 20, 30. 50 other schools that really need all like smaller green infrastructure in them where you could have really like included some of this money and spread this money out to have this green infrastructure along with other other schools and also helped out architect local architects to work on those schools yeah well Well, well, I'll tell you what the cynic in me looks at this and with my little bit of knowledge of Baltimore um, the only reason I can think that one they went with a, with Richard Rogers uh, and two they spent so much. I mean, you can imagine the architectural fees for this were probably ten percent. Mm-hmm. So uh, Rogers probably made four point two million dollars when a local firm would have done it for, for much less than a million dollars. So you know, let's let's put that aside for a second. The, the fact that they spent so much on this project and located in East Baltimore. And by a famous architect, and it is such a beacon of green building. Um, my gut feeling, you know, this is the cynic in me, is is uh, telling me uh, that because I already know that that part of Baltimore is in 
I, I visit every every year or so, uh, and uh, every time I go, there's more and more development happening. My gut feeling is telling me that they are priming. There's a there's several projects that are being primed for redevelopment of that area. And the first question that people ask when before they move into a, a, a house or an area to rent something is, "How is the school? How good is that school?" So my gut feeling is telling me that this is the first seed for a massive redevelopment that we're going to see probably in the next five to ten years of that whole area, and it is part of their plan. And do not be surprised if you see a lot of demolition of those of those properties that have been standing there for 100 years to make room for this redevelopment. That's what my gut feeling is telling me. You know, I completely agree. I think this is definitely a unintended consequence or maybe unintended consequence of what, what's coming here next. And, and actually writing it down that we should check on this in a couple of years. I think two things that we're going to come back to this story on is that I'm, I think we're going to take a trip down there at some point and look at it and maybe be able to discuss it more in the design point of view. But I think also is to check back in a couple of years and see what has happened to the neighborhood around there. Has there been displacement of the people that this school is supposed to be meant for because of this same school? Yeah. yeah. Because honestly, $42 million for school is not really that much. $42 million for a school in a horrendous area in the middle of Baltimore. Uh, that is a bit of a surprise. That is a bit of a surprise. They spent less on the library. They built the... Uh, the uh, Eli, uh, I think it's Eli Pratt or, or something like that, library, beautiful library, and they spent a whole lot less on, on libraries. There's been a big push in Baltimore for uh, for libraries. A lot of new libraries have popped up. Uh, but uh, it, it is a bit of a surprise. Is it a nice surprise? Absolutely. Uh, I would love it if it really maintained the character of the community that it was intended to do. But, uh, you know, I think we're all in agreement here. I, I'm a little suspicious. Yeah, and what I would say is, you know, like tying it into everything else that we've discussed in, in the show, the other articles, as, as the non-neutral person in this in this group, um, that I'd rather not say a neutral, is you guys both describe gentrification, basically. Right, no, right? I mean, that's the word about, yeah. that we're talking about. And, um, well, you know, architects don't necessarily like to talk about those things, or designers even like to talk about, you know, the social issues like that, and actually name it, you know, like, hey, it is gentrification, and these are the unintended or perhaps intended as, as Ray was saying that it is intended um, gentrification and and it is you know it, it's it, do we need do we should we should designers should architects should people in our practice continue to stay neutral when it affects us deeply because you know they're hiring outside architects to come and do this you know when it, it's impacting our bottom lines. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and to speak to the bottom line of, you know, from the economics of it, I gotta, I'm going to tell you right now, Richard Rogers probably got most of the fee for this, that he probably did 20% of the work, because they oh, yeah. they hired somebody local to do all the drawings for this getting built. There's no way Richard Rogers does not do construction drawings. I know that for a fact. There's no way. Yeah, and not only that, but they're not familiar with that green building standard, so they need to right. go local, because by the way, that's one of the that's one of the stipulations in the standard is that you have to have a, a architect license in the city of Baltimore. Right. Period. Yeah. And okay. I'll I'll tell you this, that guy as 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 much as that person, that firm lost money, they've also lost credit, right? Because if they ever show this project in their portfolio, well the the, the thing is gonna be that's not your job, that's Richard Rogers project. Even the Richard yeah, Rogers project. You're absolutely right. Right. Yeah, and that's another form of displacement within mm -hmm. our practice. Right. 
Um, all right, well, I mean, I've written down, so we'll check back on this. I think we, we'll try and go one of these days to Baltimore and take some photos and maybe put them up on the site as well so everybody can see yeah. some more detailed photos of the building. Photo safari of it. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and then we'll, I'll so keep this. Uh, I think we should put a link to the Green Building Center if anybody's interested oh, in yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely, uh, we should do that, yeah. And uh, and and we'll we'll keep this on uh, on a list so that we can check back in a couple of years and see what what to do into the neighborhood. That's the show. Thanks everybody for listening. Um, we'll be all back next week. Uh, I'm not sure what we're gonna talk about, but we'll figure that out. As always. You can find me at, at City Aperture, and I'm going to put links to all of our social medias and YouTube channels. You can also email the show now at madepodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear your comments on the show and even ideas for other episodes. Thanks again for listening, and you guys have a good week.